Russ Kazmierzak Jr. grew up in Arizona and has been drawing comics since 2001. When he moved back here from California last year, he wondered what he would draw about. A Valley cartoonist hopes to impress people with his comic books based on Arizona politics. Amazing Arizona Comics. Created by Russ Kazmierzak, based on the headlines. That's pretty hilarious. Hey everybody, you're listening to Amazing Arizona Comics Radio, the podcast dedicated to the creation of my mini-comic, Amazing Arizona Comics, a superhero satire of Arizona news, history, and culture. Find it online on Instagram at AmazingAZComics or at AmazingArizonaComics.com. This episode, I want to talk about Spider-Man Homecoming, the latest installment of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's exciting to call these movies installments because each film is truly like an episode in an ongoing tale that of course started with Iron Man back in, what, 2008? And Spider-Man Homecoming, as much as it's a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is also very much a part of that chapter of the Cinematic Universe, Iron Man's chapter. Because many of his supporting cast are featured in this film, and the story itself is a bit of an extension of Tony Stark's desire to both escape and fulfill his father's long shadow. And he's doing that by uh, proverbially adopting Peter Parker as both a, a superhero prodigy and kind of an intellectual apprentice. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about the movie from the beginning. Let's talk about the stuff I liked. The Marvel logo that flashes on the screen with images of characters from all of the movies that have been released. This time that logo had the soundtrack of that classic Spider-Man theme. You know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man does ba 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 do ba do ba do And it was orchestral. It was cinematic. It was truly uh, epic, unlike uh, the way we've heard it portrayed in past films as kind of a, uh, a beat folk song sung in Chelsea or something like that. Now it took its rightful place as a, uh, as a soundtrack for a feature film, and it was a bit spiritually chilling for me in a great way to hear those last chords as the Marvel logo faded the chords of which uh, would contain the lyrics if someone had been singing, Here Comes the Spider-Man. Finally, Spider-Man has returned to his roots. The, the subtitle Homecoming truly means something here, not just because the story takes place during uh, Spider-Man's school's homecoming, but he's returned. Peter Parker is now among 
the other characters of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, he represents such a significant pillar of the world of Marvel. And I'll talk about that in, uh, in a little while. But that intro with the, with the logo got me really excited. Of course, I appreciated that the movie uh, tipped a hat to Spider-Man's uh, premiere appearance in Captain America Civil War by uh, exploiting Peter's excitement, the journey to Germany, uh, receiving the suit for the first time, and we see that through his eyes as he's recording it on camera. Uh, little footnotes during the fight that'll uh, be fun to uh, watch over and over again now when you're taking in both films for another viewing, watching Civil War and knowing Peter's doing that, and now watching this and kind of placing it chronologically with when he fought Cap and then Giant Man. Very cool stuff, and truly a part of Peter's character. Think about it. If this is a Peter that's been Spidey for about six months, it was less than a year ago that he sought to exploit his powers for fame and fortune before learning the hard lesson with Uncle Ben's death, with great power comes great responsibility. Just imagine how that story of a, a newly clad as Spider-Man, Peter Parker, stepping into the wrestling ring translates to today's world with social media, even more so than Tobey Maguire's incarnation, and Andrew Garfield's, to be true, now Facebook Live and YouTube vlogging are staples of entertainment culture. And if you have powers at 14, 15 years old, of course you're going to want to be an online phenom. So it makes sense that despite having learned that hard lesson, Peter is still kind of vlogging his experience as Spider-Man in the hopes that maybe one day, you never know. So, I liked that part of the story a lot. I wish it was a little bit more of a through line. The, the front part of the movie, the first act really, is really heavy with that. But uh, once we're introduced to Spider-Man, Peter Parker, and the role he plays alongside Iron Man and Happy Hogan and kind of his pining to be an Avenger, we really get a taste for what Michael Keaton's all about. And his introduction as the, the Vulture was the most surprising uh, positive aspect of the first act of the film for me because I loved his motivation. I loved his blue-collar uh, approach to villainy. You know, it starts with him just... Uh, working as a as a construction site lead. He's been contracted by the city to clean up the alien debris left behind by the Avengers in their first fight, that first film, with the, what are they called, the Shatari? Uh, those aliens from, uh, uh, f from far away that came through the portal Loki conjured, right? So all of this stuff, this weaponry, this armor, these jet sleds or whatever, it's all laying around the city. And somebody's got to clean it up. And I loved that they addressed that aspect of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That, that until uh, Tony Stark implemented damage control, which to me seems like a, a, a subset of S.H.I.E.L.D. These are people that they are just janitors, basically, but high-tech, you know, almost superpower-oriented uh, construction crews. Uh, you just had your regular Joes out there getting uh, placing bids acquiring the rights to clean this stuff up. There's got to be big money in that. It was very cool and uh, to see that aspect and then to see what would happen to somebody when that money is taken away. And so he's given this kind of righteous indignation that, hey, I'm just uh, a regular, hardworking guy. Now I'm in a world full of 
gods and monsters. I at least found a place cleaning up after them to a point, but now you're even taking that away from me. What is left? Well, I got to take something for myself. So as villainous as he became, the motivations were interesting, to say the least. And again, humanitarian in a way, if only he hadn't uh, completely gone to the dark side. But it was really cool to see Michael Keaton in that role. You know, it's I, the Vulture is a villain I can't say I've loved in the comics. I'm very familiar with him, particularly uh, his role in the Sinister Six. I think I have two or three Vulture action figures here at the house. So, I mean, he's definitely a staple of Spider-Man's rogues gallery. I think he first appeared in the second issue of Spider Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, or something like that. So it makes sense that he'd appear in a film, um... I wish it had happened a little sooner, and I wish he didn't have such a big role. It seems like his plot could have been alongside other villains' development, but I'm kind of straying into critical territory here. I want to stick on the stuff I liked first. Uh, the emphasis on Peter's high school life was very cool, something kind of glossed over by the other films. Um, it was cool to see the way he uh, interacted with other kids at school, especially his friend Ned who became the uh, quote-unquote guy in the chair, the guy at the computers or whatever, the sidekick, the microchip, the oracle, however you want to define that role. They certainly did, and uh, they kind of poked fun at it. And other superhero tropes, which I liked a lot. I liked that uh, Ned was uh, very into Peter's secret identity. And it was cool to uh, experience Peter's adventures through his eyes. You know, Peter's such a young kid, uh, 14, 15 years old, in the time that we've known him now via the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that, uh, you know, this is a character that was once intended for younger readers to project themselves into. Now, some of us fans are older. Sure, there are kids going that are still doing that, but for us, what's left, it's the wonder of this stuff, seeing it in real life on the big screen for the first time. There have been incarnations of Spider-Man in film. A lot. But here he is, like I said, alongside these other Avengers, these other characters that we love. So to see Ned's wide-eyed wonder throughout the movie, it was very a very befitting of who we are now in the audience watching as Spidey and Iron Man uh, team up, you know, and uh, <laughs> fight alongside one another. Uh, Peter's journey was great as far as wanting to be treated as an adult, or at least uh, treated as if he has uh, more potential than what he was exhibiting. When he uh, got a little too big for his britches, it was nice to see him humbled and learn from the experience. Um, at the end, it was interesting to see Tony uh, return the suit and offer that place in Avengers Mansion. Um, and for Peter, to it was very Civil War from the comics-esque in that you're going to have a, a Spider-Man presented to the media. Of course, in the comics during Civil War, Peter unmasks himself and sides with Iron Man. But here in the in, in the film, it kind of harkened back to that first Iron Man movie where Tony says, you know what, yeah, I am Iron Man. And that's where the movie ends. In this case, Peter has that same opportunity for fame and turns it down. So I liked the nod to the comics. I liked that it brought Iron Man's story uh, to a cyclical point where, again, it looks like he's going to move forward as a character with uh, Pepper and Happy. He's got some weird, his friends have some weird names. Pepper, Happy, is there Salty, Doc, uh, Seasoned, I don't know who his other friends are, but uh, yeah, that was very cool to see Tony 
taking on the role of his father, but then also projecting himself into Peter in that way. And when Peter says, ah, you know what, I'd rather keep looking out for the little guy, I liked that moment because it gave Tony that spark of, yeah, maybe I was offering this kid something so big that even I'm losing, losing sight of what this is all about. And then at the same time, the vulture's cause is a little righteous at that point. Of course, what he did is completely evil. He's killing people. He's, he's trafficking super weapons. But at the same time, Peter understands the motivation, and he applies it to his own superheroics. Really loved that aspect of the movie. And I thought it brought themes that have gone as far back as Iron Man's first movie all the way home. Home, uh, homecoming, if you will. Oh, look what I did there. Ah, uh, I should be writing these movies. I have such an appreciation and a mastery of cyclical storytelling, even in my own podcasting. <laughs> no, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. But those aspects of Spider-Man Homecoming were, were really cool, man. I really enjoyed a young Peter Parker staying young, learning lessons, interacting with friends, being, uh, you know, viable and active on social media like a 15-year-old kid would be. It was a great picture of adolescence. And I think that's Spider-Man's ultimate role now in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is he is the kid that has a lot of potential, a lot of power, and his role will be adding this humor, this innocence, uh, even more so than Ant-Man's humor, Peter's is coming from a place of, of wonder and awe, whereas uh, Ant-Man's is a little jaded. So it's a nice contrast between these two insect-themed characters that seem dwarfed by these huge gods and monsters around them, and yet we're going to see them play roles in, in Infinity War and beyond. If uh, Tom Holland, the actor that plays Peter Parker, I think that's his name, if he is able to stick with this role for as long as Robert Downey Jr. has stuck with the Iron Man role, we're going to see this kid go from 15 to like 25. And it'll be amazing by the time we get to that point, he's the person teaching lessons. And even after Iron Man, or at least Robert Downey Jr., has moved on from the role, and you either have another actor portraying Iron Man, or Iron Man has retired, or whatever the case may be, you'll have a Peter Parker that was once tutored by him and can still call back to those lessons uh, 10 years from now as these movies are still being made. Uh, and it will create such a, a continuity in this Marvel Cinematic Universe that uh, you'll never have to reboot. It's a story of legacy and, like I said, apprenticeship, a little bit of destiny, uh, a story that only Spider-Man can tell.
Alright, now that I've praised the movie and myself a little bit, I think it's time to talk about the things that left me a little uneasy about the movie. And let me say this, I haven't been blown away by any Spider-Man movie. I guess Tobey Maguire's very first movie, the very first Spider-Man film, is my favorite of any Spider-Man film made to date, perhaps excluding this one, only because of its connection to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which can do no wrong, in my opinion, at this point. But there were some flubs here, little missteps, things that, that like I said, made me uneasy. Definitely still an enjoyable film, four out of five stars if I was giving it some sort of ranking. But, uh, you know, that first Tobey Maguire film really was wondrous and left us with all. We were, like I mentioned to Ned earlier, just starstruck by finally seeing Spider-Man swinging on screen in a costume that looked very familiar, fighting a villain uh, whose motivation was clear and who we knew from the comics with characters like Mary Jane and Harry Osborn and J. Jonah Jameson. I mean, to see those characters come to life, truly amazing. And the casting of that film cannot be denied. Tobey Maguire gets crap now for some reason, but at the time, he was Spider-Man. There was no better young actor, and I don't know how young he was, maybe that's part of the problem, but, uh, you know, he portrayed that uh, puny Peter Parker... And then the Amazing Spider-Man, that dichotomy so well, that to me the movies, those movies, his movies, hold up. Spider-Man 3, of course, being the weakest, and one I will never watch again. But uh, that, that's top to bottom uh, a bad movie, even by the director's own admission, as his original draft was changed quite a bit. And I'd like to use that movie as kind of the jumping-on point of my first criticism of Spider-Man Homecoming. When we had those first three Sam Raimi-directed Spider-Man films, the villains were Green Goblin, then Doc Ock, classic Spider-Man villains, then Sandman, who I'd put in the same league as the Vulture, as a major villain, but certainly not a kingpin or, uh, or a, an arch-nemesis, that's more of a Green Goblin, a Doc Ock, a character that really cuts to the hero's core. That's like an arch-nemesis. But then you could have a great bad guy or a, a big villain as well, and that's where I'd put Sandman or Vulture or Electro. They don't cut to Peter's heart like Dr. Octopus does or Green Goblin does, and that's because in some part those characters know who Spider-Man really is. But going back to Sandman, they created him in the cinematic universe of Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man as, as an arch-nemesis by, by adding him to the origin story, by making him uh, an accomplice in Uncle Ben's murder, so forced, so weird, so needless, you could have villains that are just doing bad things without ties to the hero's world, and doesn't it make the hero more heroic when he has no personal stake in stopping that bad guy? That was one of my biggest problems with Spider-Man 3, was that the Sandman is a cool villain. They had a great actor playing him. The special effects were cool. But why does he have to be a part of Peter Parker's life? He could just be a part of Spider-Man's life. So, when that series ended, there were, of course, plans for a fourth film, and there were rumors of the Vulture's involvement. There were rumors of the Lizard being a villain as well, because we had seen Kurt Connors in the previous three movies. So when Spider-Man was rebooted with Andrew Garfield cast as Peter, they continued with the lineage of villains 
So you didn't get a rebooted Green Goblin yet. You didn't get a Doc Ock yet, or even shades of the character. Instead, you got was the Lizard, which who would have been the natural next villain in Sam Raimi's Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man franchise. So I thought it was weird then that here's a villain, the Lizard, who could be considered an arch, an arch nemesis, considering Dr. Connor's tutelage of Peter Parker, but as a first film villain? Okay, I gave it a shot, and, you know, it, it came out with mixed results. Green Goblin then being in the second movie, did they call him that? Hobgoblin? Uh, I know the Rhino was in there somewhere. In an appropriate minor role, and actually my favorite part of that Spider-Man movie is the fact that it's bookended with these scenes featuring the Rhino, and I've always thought, I've always said this, wouldn't it be cool if a Spider-Man movie just starts with a fight with Electro, Spider-Man puts him away, and then you never see him again, it's just an episodic, almost James Bond-like intro to the film, where there's high, high action and adventure, the villain goes away, and that's it, it's like Electro, played by Bruce Willis. And then you never see him again. It wasn't important to the story. It was just a cool way to kick things off. Like in a comic, when you start an issue with, an, with a splash page and a little action sequence that then leads into a major plot. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's one of my criticisms of superhero films in general. But surprisingly, Amazing Spider-Man 2 uh, actually kind of delivered. But again, you get these villains that are just... Uh, and then, and then, and then, instead of pure reboots of the classic villains we've already seen, like Doc Ock, of course, at the end of Amazing Spider-Man 2, there were these hints that the Sinister Six were coming, and you see Doc Ock's arms, you see the Vulture's wings, that never reaches fruition as that franchise ends. And so now, in this incarnation of Spider-Man, you continue with a villain. We still haven't seen the Vulture, who again probably would have been the next major villain, or at least included, as we saw in those Sinister Six teases. So that's just always weird to me. They did that with Batman, too. You know, you get Jack Nicholson as the Joker. Then you get Penguin and Catwoman. Two-Face, Riddler, Poison Ivy, Bane, Mr. Freeze. So you get a nice roster of, of rogues as the movie's degraded in quality and significance. But when they rebooted, finally, they continued by introducing new villains instead of doing a hard reboot. You see, if the Batman franchise that had started with Michael Keaton, and interesting now we're still talking about Michael Keaton in a, in a superhero movie, but had that Tim Burton, Michael Keaton, Batman franchise continued, the rumors were... The next movie, after Batman and Robin, would have featured Scarecrow and Harley Quinn with perhaps a Joker callback via some fear gas from the Scarecrow. Those were the online rumors at the time. So what you get is the holdover of Scarecrow in Batman Begins. You add Ra's al Ghul. Interesting, as far as an origin story goes, with training in the League of Assassins or whatever. But no Joker in a first Batman story? No Catwoman, as we saw in Batman number one? Interesting to me that, that Hollywood and producers, even when they hard reboot a franchise, keep some of those notes from the drafts that are dangling and at least keep the villains going. It may be to sell toys and franchising things. It may be because there isn't a trust in a mainstream audience to embrace a hard reboot like that. We could give you a new actor in the, in the hero's role, but surely you won't accept a new actor as Green Goblin yet. I don't know. I've always thought that was weird. 
And so again, it contributes to this film in that the vulture is the main bad guy. And to me, eh, main bad guy, what redeemed Adrian Toomes was that motivation I mentioned earlier. So I was grateful for that. Something I missed in this movie, a lot of the tenants from Spider-Man's extended world. Spider-Man is a pillar in the Marvel Comics universe, not so much the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or at least now he is, but in Marvel Comics proper, elements of Spider-Man's circle have spread to affect other characters. Norman Osborn, for example, as a mogul, has gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Iron Man, and Tony Stark, as much as he's uh, thrown blows with Spider-Man. The Kingpin is a crossover villain between Spider-Man and Daredevil, and countless other characters at this point. The Hulk has faced Dr. Octopus, and Lord knows Venom's encountered everybody. The Punisher started as a character in Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, that's where he premiered and then became the popular hero or anti-hero we know him to be today. So the, so the Spider-Man corner of the Marvel Comics universe is important. The Daily Bugle with J. Jonah Jameson criticizing Spider-Man and other supervillains. That's a big deal. Uh, Spider-Man's attempt to become a member of the Fantastic Four in his youth, and then that, that continuing friendship with the Human Torch and the way that kind of sets the precedent for other buddy relationships in Marvel Comics. It's, it's interesting that here's Spider-Man again for the first time as a member now truly of Marvel's cinematic universe, and none of that stuff was really presented. We don't see JJJ and the Daily Bugle, we don't get a taste of Spider-Man's budding friendship with any other heroes, except perhaps Iron Man, but that's a, an apprenticeship, uh, like I said. Uh, of course, there's Happy Hogan and a bit of a buddy cop relationship, but it's episodic throughout the movie. It's not quite a through line. It's just consistent. So it's, well, it is a through line in Peter's uh, constant attempts to reach out to Happy. So I, I take that back, but it's definitely not... Uh, on equal ground as, say, Peter and Matt Murdock might be, or uh, Peter and the Human Torch. So that's what I'm getting at here is it was as much an, ex as much an introduction of Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as it was still a weird little pocket of a movie focusing on a kid discovering his powers and his place in the world. Uh, it could have been any character. That could have been any young character in that respect. Of course, the power set is, is unique. The villains uh, are unique. But other than Aunt May and Ned, who I'll get to in a second here, you don't get the extended cast that make Peter who he is. No mention of Uncle Ben. And I could live with that because we've heard so much of Uncle Ben from these past five Spider-Man movies. I don't know. I was just a little... Jarred. We get Betty Brant on uh, the school's, you know, and morning announcements. Uh, Flash Thompson is there, but it's an advanced school, so he's not quite the dumb jock. He's just a jerk that's also very smart, like Peter. So the characters took on different incarnations and still just boasted the name. That takes us to the greatest offense of the film, in my humble opinion the seeming introduction of MJ, whose name is really Michelle, 
And she's a character we saw throughout the film. I guess we didn't hear her name until the very end, but it was just so weird that all of a sudden we're told that this has been MJ throughout the movie. And I don't know about you, but I don't call Mary Jane MJ in my head or when I read the books. I'm more akin to her full name, Mary Jane. So I was especially jarred by that. I guess Ned was a nod to Ned Leeds, a classic Spider-Man character, but in this incarnation he takes the shape of an ultimate Spider-Man friend of Miles Morales. Uh, and he's included here. I don't know if it's because of the attempt to be more diverse or you want more of a foil than a Harry Osborn would have been, but that certainly could have been Harry Osborn as well, especially considering how smart the kid is and how that could have led into future films as far as this character becoming the Green Goblin or at least having a, a grudge against his buddy Spider-Man. I don't know, it just seemed like there were elements of the movie that pulled punches for the sake of a bigger plan that perhaps hasn't been laid out yet. That could be Sony's touch on this thing. You know, there are rumors that Sony wants to create uh, a pocket Spider-Man universe, a spin-off Spider-Verse, uh, under the Sony banner that would feature Venom and uh, Black Cat and Silver Sable. And they would, but wouldn't be a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe proper. In my opinion, that's a mistake. Don't do it, Sony. Just sell Spider-Man to Marvel for like a billion dollars. Sit back and enjoy great storytelling. Please stop trying to build worlds and universes. You saw what happened with the money and that, that Tom Cruise flop over at Universal Studios. Don't do that with Spider-Man's rich roster of characters. The MJ thing and the lack of those other supporting characters really took me out of the movie and, again, was probably my biggest criticism of the film. It was kind of akin to... Uh, Levitt's revelation that he's Robin at the end of the Dark Knight trilogy. The big twist is the is the character's real name. Seemed weird and jarring and, and, and completely unnecessary, ultimately, especially since MJ's character, her personality, would be more of a Gwen Stacy type, a brainy recluse that Peter might ultimately relate to. The cool thing about Peter and MJ's relationship is that despite... Parker's consistent hard luck, at some point he scores a hot babe like MJ, and everybody's looking at her like, what are you doing with Peter, man? And she's like, hey, I see more in him than you guys do. That's a cool part of their relationship, and now we'll never really have that because, yeah, of course these two characters would, would be together. They're on the Scholastic team together. This podcast is about the inspirations and the creative process behind my 
mini comic book Amazing Arizona Comics, and Spider-Man certainly plays a role in any comic I make because of how important he was to me as a kid reading comics. I've told the story before of how my dad worked for a moving company and one day brought home a small box of comics that one of his clients was going to throw away, and at the top of that stack of new comics, for me, was Amazing Spider-Man number 347. In it, Spider-Man and Venom fight on an island, presumably to the death. Of course, Spider-Man wins, and Venom does not die. (laughs) So, to the death is a bit of a misnomer, but uh, the story was so compelling to me. It was such a great first impression of what mainstream comics really are, to this day, adventure, intrigue, mystery, and that personal struggle, that's the part that struck me the most. Spider-Man, of course, wanted to live, but at no point does he consider killing his enemy to do so. In fact, he's looking for this ideal solution in the end, where he can escape Venom's clutches, and then he ultimately leaves him on this island paradise to live out the rest of his days. Venom, of course, eventually returns, but for that singular issue, there's a happy ending for everyone. And it's uh, an interesting aspect of Spider-Man's character. That that self-sacrifice he learned when his actions inadvertently caused the death of Uncle Ben. I liked that this movie moved past that origin story we've seen twice before on screen now. Well, maybe three times if you count the shades of it in Spider-Man 3 with Tobey Maguire, but uh, the ramifications of that origin were still very prominent in all of Peter Parker's decisions. He gets so close many times in this movie alone to having a regular life, a regular high schooler's life, hanging out with friends, going to academic tournaments, you know, going to the dance. But each time he had to make that hard decision to forsake his personal desires for a greater good. And that's what Spider-Man represents to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this innocent approach to heroism that is still motivated by self-sacrifice. But that's also what he represents to me, that truly with great power comes great responsibility. You don't always have to hear the words to understand. Sometimes a hero's actions are enough. And whatever criticisms I or others might have for this movie, it is still drenched in that theme. And so, undeniably, it's a great Spider-Man story. You can find Amazing Arizona Comics online at AmazingArizonaComics.com. You can follow me on Instagram as well at AmazingAZComics. You know, I also host a live local late-night talk show called Phoenix Tonight. It's like a Johnny Carson-style late-night talk show featuring... Interviews with local celebrities, actors, musicians, comedians, artists. And I deliver a monologue and attempt some comedy, too. So you can find that on YouTube at Phoenix Tonight. Just look for Phoenix Tonight on YouTube, and surely you will find it quickly. You can follow Phoenix Tonight on Facebook as well. All right, everybody, thanks for listening to this amazing Arizona Comics radio installment. Keep your ears open for the next episode of Stuck in Traffic, coming to you soon from this RSS feed. And I'll catch you next time.